Well, I'm going to change the order up a little bit this morning because I want to begin by talking about the passage that Stacy just read us from 2 Samuel. In order to understand David's thought process in this passage, we need to have a little bit of understanding of what this moment represented for him and for the Israelite people. You might recall that just a few weeks ago, we heard the story of David's anointing by Samuel when God no longer wanted Saul to be king over Israel. At this point, several years have passed since that story, and the intervening time has been filled with violence and turmoil for David. He serves in Saul's court at various times, narrowly avoiding multiple attempts on his life as Saul becomes increasingly jealous of David's chosen status. I actually chose an image on the screen that's a painting by the Spanish Baroque artist Jose Leonardo, and this depicts one of the occasions on which Saul throws a spear at David in his own throne room. David is sent out in battle with the Israelite army, and he's successful despite the fact that Saul keeps giving him increasingly difficult tasks, including that of bringing back some very personal items from 100 Philistines in exchange for the right to marry one of Saul's daughters. Eventually, David has to flee for his life with a tiny band of rebels, leaving even that hard-earned wife behind, and he only assumes the throne once Saul is killed by those same Philistines. Despite their strained relationship, we're told that David mourned Saul's death. Then he is anointed king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel, which includes the city of Jerusalem, but there's still a lot of conflict in the north. A few commanders are still faithful to Saul, even though he's dead, and they name one of his surviving sons as king over that northern territory. Several altercations take place between representatives of these two kingdoms, and numerous people are killed in increasingly creative and grotesque ways, followed by an all-out war. God is on David's side, though, and he prevails in battle once again. Saul's son dies, and David is finally anointed ruler over what we now call the united monarchy, both the northern and the southern kingdom. David declares Jerusalem the capital of the whole place, and as you heard in last week's reading from 2 Samuel 6, David has the Ark of the Covenant representing God's physical presence with the people brought to the capital city of Jerusalem. And it's here that we pick up the story. Having heard all of this, I think we're able to recognize that this moment in time represents a huge transition for David. He's been a sheep herder, a nomad, a wanderer, a battle-hardened warrior, always traveling, sometimes fleeing, never able to rest in one place for very long. And now finally, David finds himself at home. It's almost as though he sits down and he takes a deep breath and he doesn't know what to do with himself. In our reading this morning from chapter 7, David's first instinct is to start a building project. It occurs to him that now he has a permanent home, but God is still living in a tent. I think it's important here that we try to put ourselves into an ancient mindset. Today, we have no trouble at all believing that God can be right here present with us in Brexville United Methodist Church and still be present with countless brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. But that wasn't an ancient mindset. They perceived God's presence quite differently. So much so that in the years to come, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem became a required part of their faith. 
so that the people could be really close to where God actually dwelled at least once in a while. It would be hundreds of years before they really came to realize that God could and would be with them wherever they went. Seeing this situation through that ancient lens then, David's inclination seems like an honorable one. He looks at his own living quarters and he thinks, well, surely God should get a better house than the one that I'm living in. So he determines he's going to build a sturdy, permanent dwelling place for God. God, however, has something else to say about it. Haven't I moved around with you all this time? God asks. Haven't I stuck with all the tribal leaders and been with you through all of the battles? I've been there since the day you came up out of Egypt, and have I ever once asked anybody for a house? Have I asked you for a house? No, God continues, I don't need you to build me a house because I am building a house out of you. This passage issues an interesting and important challenge to us in the present day. It highlights what I'm going to call the ongoing tension between being the institutional church and being a missional church. I would suggest to you this morning that we're often much better at being an institution than we are at being in mission. I want to clarify and say I'm not suggesting that we aren't good at doing missions. This congregation has a strong and wonderful tradition of giving much time and money and energy to many short-term mission projects. But I am suggesting that in a larger sense, we are better at understanding ourselves as an institution than we are at becoming missional as a community. For an example, we don't need to look any further than what's happening in our own United Methodist Church, where we know that many urban churches are closing in areas where there is tremendous need, but churches with energy and resources are very slow to respond, if we respond at all. Congregations are often more worried about filling positions than with positioning themselves to spread the gospel to people who need to experience some tangible, in-person love and grace. We are often more interested in building our infrastructure than we are with taking on the structures that prevent people from experiencing God's love and mercy. To be sure, the challenge is a big one. So we would prefer to work in our own homes and hunker down, but God speaks to us as God spoke to David. I don't need you to build me a bigger and better house. I'm trying to build the house through you. I want to turn to our gospel reading now, which is in two sections. It's Mark 6, 30 to 34, and then we jump to verses 53 to 56. This is actually our third week in a row that we've looked at the sixth chapter of Mark. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus send out the disciples to carry out the work of healing and casting out demons. And you might recall Jesus telling the disciples that if they went to a town and their message wasn't well received, they should just shake the dirt off their feet and keep moving. That's a sentence that always sticks in my mind from that reading. Last week, Janet spoke a little bit about the story of the beheading of John the Baptist, which the author of Mark interjects into the middle of this chapter. But in a sense, our reading this morning really picks up from two weeks ago. The disciples were sent out, and now they've returned. This is Mark chapter 6, beginning in the 30th verse. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they told him all that they'd done and taught. And he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourself and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had had no leisure to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. 
Many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried on foot from all the towns, and they arrived there ahead of them. And as Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And if we continued straight through this reading, we would hear the familiar story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a very small amount of food as it grows late, and his disciples say, send them away and make them find something to eat, and Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And then we see the disciples row across the Sea of Galilee, and the wind kicks up, and the storm is there, and Jesus walks out across the water to them, climbs in the boat and calms the storm, and then our reading picks up in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him, and they rushed about that whole region, and they began to bring the sick on mats wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, in villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So in our reading two weeks ago, Jesus sends the followers out, and now they've come back from their journeys. They report out to Jesus, sharing their successes and probably some failures too. I want you to put a real face on these men and women for just a moment. Imagine them telling Jesus the stories of places that had welcomed them, places where people were healed and spirits were changed. And imagine them also telling Jesus about the places where they did just have to shake the dust off their feet and move on. When they've told their stories, Jesus tells them to find a quiet spot and rest for a bit because, as we heard, many of them hadn't even had time for a meal. They get away for a bit, but they don't go unnoticed, and the crowds are right there following them. Jesus sees this crowd, and despite his own fatigue, he takes the time to teach them. It gets late, and I think this whole setup really helps us understand the story of that feeding miracle that we're going to talk more about next week. These followers of Jesus are tired. They've gotten this little short break, and Jesus is undoubtedly tired too, but faced with 7,000 hungry people, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you give them something to eat. I know you're tired. I know you don't see how this is going to work out. But keep moving, my friends. There's still work to do. Our task this morning isn't to dwell on the feeding miracle itself, but to recognize that throughout this passage, both Jesus and the disciples continue to rise above their own fatigue and their own perceived limitations, and they continue to meet the needs of the people around them again and again. Jesus gives the disciples another moment of rest and then sends them out in a boat to cross the sea, but instead of a smooth voyage, they strain against the oars, blown and tossed by the wind, until Jesus observes their struggle and comes to their rescue. And when they reach the other side, their ministry immediately resumes, and they are right back at it in the full-time ministry of healing and meeting the needs of the people. I would suggest to you this morning that on some level, we do recognize this as a model for ministry. We are sent out, we return, we tell the stories of our joys and our struggles, our successes and our failures, and then we rest up a little and we're sent out again. The truth is, though, that it's hard. It's hard to keep going when perhaps we go out on a mission and the project doesn't go the way we expect. Maybe we feel we aren't needed or that we haven't done enough. Maybe the people or the person whom we have been sent 
They don't seem particularly grateful, or they don't appear to be taking advantage of the help that we're offering. Maybe the pieces just don't fall into place, or an idea we thought was brilliant just doesn't work out. I think it's tempting to come back to home base and we give our report, but instead of resting up, we're tempted to give up, or to take an awful lot of time before we want to be sent out again. To us, Jesus says, keep moving. I want to say one more important thing this morning about the way I think we tend to hear a passage like this. We live in a culture that is in deeply individualistic, and I don't say that as a statement of good or bad, but I think just a reality of the times in which we live. Our value is computed as a product of how much we have individually achieved at our job, how well we perform on our own exams, the marks that show up on our individual report card, the speed with which we rise through the ranks in our class or with our colleagues. So we hear a reading like this one and we feel the pressure as individuals to do better, to be better. There's a place for that. And it's certainly true that each of us can do better individually at responding to God's call on our lives. But it's also important, perhaps even more important, that we hear this as a challenge to us. It isn't enough to point fingers and say that you or you or you have to keep moving. We have to keep moving together. Jesus calls us to be in community, and just as he sent those disciples out, not by themselves, but two by two, maybe there were even some bigger groups, we are to go out in the strength of this community to be kingdom builders. To us as a body, Jesus said, I came to remind you that as comfortable as you are in your own home, you are not called to build a bigger and a better house for God. Just as God did with King David, God is working to build a better kingdom through you. As a community and as a congregation, we have successes and failures. We have ideas that work beautifully and ideas that don't work out at all. We try projects or classes sometimes that never quite seem to get off the ground or they fizzle after a while. I believe it's important though that as a community, we take the time to tell those stories and express our disappointment when things don't work out just as we do express our excitement when they do work out. And then we have to get back to the business of being set out, of being creative, of being energetic about finding ways to share the good news of the gospel and keep building the kingdom. As a community of faith, we must resist the temptation to become too comfortable in our own home. Jesus calls us to keep moving. Amen.